Welcome to the CDC Podcast, episode 50. I'm your host, Eric Swain, and with me this time is YouTube content creator Alex Carlson of Post Mesmeric. Hi, great to be here. So, how did you get into video-based video game criticism? Well, I originally was a big fan of a lot of the YouTube content creator scene. I really noticed around the time I was in Games Press, which was probably, uh, I want to say, three or four years ago, and I started seeing a lot more people move from written to video content production. And I, I was just always fascinated by that because YouTube was this scene where for a while I just kind of assumed it was mostly for entertainment. But I started seeing more and more channels focus on design or, I guess, more of the academic sense. And uh, I kind of just wanted to be a part of that. It was really fascinating to me to see something that I originally thought would only be used for entertainment would be treating games in a more, uh, I guess, I guess a more artistic sense. And I was just fascinated by that, and I wanted to be a part of it. You mentioned your experience in uh, games press. Can you? Are you able to go into more detail? Oh, oh yeah. I was originally a writer for a few smaller sites. Um, one of them is uh, was Default Prime. I, I think that that's uh, defunct now. And I also wrote for places like uh, HardcoreGamer.com. And it was a really interesting experience because I had just gotten out of school. With, uh, I went to college for communications and journalism, so I kind of wanted to get involved in the games press scene ever since I was you know, just starting out. And when I, everyone at Hardcore Gamer was really accommodating for different kinds of writing. Like we obviously did reviews. There were some op-eds, previews. And then every now and then I got to write something that kind of felt like a catalyst for the kind of content that I would make on YouTube later. I wrote an article a while back sort of saying how the original Gears of War for the 360 was actually a pretty intelligently designed game. And I kind of noticed right there that, yeah, this is the kind of stuff that I want to talk about. And I, once I eventually left HardcoreGamer.com, I wanted to uh, sort of try my hand at more kind of criticism like that. And then you mentioned that you looked around the scene of, like, critical essayists and the like on YouTube. Who did you see that inspired you to get into this? I think that the the one content creator that really kind of opened my eyes to what was capable of the games criticism field was probably Matthew Matosis. You know, he makes these extensive, in-depth critiques of different games. And I really admired just the way he was able to see what were essentially pretty simple ideas. And he explored them in a context where there were all these different systems going on in the games yeah, how a really small element of a game can mean so much more when put under the right context. And I was just really, really enamored with that mindset. So it was probably Matthew Matosis who really got me interested in this field of video production on YouTube. So um, what about, like, your personal process? How do you go about creating a video from, like, inception to final publication? I really think that they come to me kind of spontaneously. I, Depending on the type of video, I would look at it in different ways. Sometimes I would go in to a game kind of looking for something interesting, depending on the type of game. 
And sometimes I would just be playing a game and I'd just see something that I think, wow, I can make a video about this. This is sort of something that I haven't seen in any other games. So it's kind of weird because I've, I've seen a lot of other content creators have a process of looking for these things. And sometimes for me, sometimes I'm looking for something, looking for a new idea, and sometimes it just comes to me. And after I come up with the idea, I start writing down notes, just spontaneous, unorganized notes, build the script around that, kind of organize it in a certain way, and then it's just right into the recording and the editing. And so it's it's a little different than a lot of what I've seen from other content creators. I, I don't really have so much of a process because it varies from game to game. That, that was interesting, though, that, that you feel that you start with an idea rather than a game or even a thesis. So it's more of an like an amorphous exploration of what design is? Yeah, it's a really organic idea, I guess. I like finding the idea. Once I have an idea that kind of is able to be structured into a thesis, I sort of use that as a stepping stone to develop arguments around it, sort of segment it into different portions. And it really all comes down with an idea, and I just roll with it. The thing is, is like when I try to do these interviews, I try to figure out what is at a core of like how a person worked, I guess what their oeuvre is. And after a certain cutoff date somewhere in 2015, it seems more like people are following a pattern of how something is done. They've seen other people do it and they follow in this pattern. And sometimes I have difficulty finding what is, or sometimes articulating what is unique about that person. And with you, it was similar up until I watched your OCD video, and then in your introduction, you just stated something that just sort of clicked what your other videos were doing, in that that you're looking at games from a design perspective, but unlike the uh, much more mechanically focused, like Game Maker's Toolkit or Great Levels in Gaming, you're looking at it more from a thematic perspective, and how design influences into that direction, or am I way off base? No, I think that that's kind of my mindset. I, I actually think that over time I've kind of focused more on thematic elements instead of anything very specific. I think that, you know, I'm, I know that there are a lot of YouTube content creators out there, and I have a lot of respect for people like Mark Brown who are able to take a lot of the mechanics and say, okay, this could mean this, and this is a good idea because of this. Uh, I think it's more just the way that I think, just the more organic construction of these videos that I make, that I, I am, and now that you mention it, I am kind of focused more on themes, and I definitely have seen that sort of growing over time, that I have been focusing less on just individual mechanics and more about what these mechanics might mean thematically. You can sort of see it even from the titles of it, where at first it starts like the progression fantasy, the art of control, and then after a while you get Kojima's getting personal empathy by gameplay, and how it's focused more on what is the direct result in like the player's emotional state or mindset than it is with what are they doing. I think that originally those early videos, I was kind of still finding my feet trying to use the mechanics as a way to 
sort of talk more about the game itself. And I think that as I've grown, I've noticed that I want to kind of talk about something, I guess, I guess a little more personal, a little more customizable to my own experiences. That's kind of what I've been seeing a lot in things like the Pyre video, where I was sort of talking about how its structure and its design was affecting me emotionally. I kind of felt the same way with the Catherine video and uh, obviously the OCD video, although that was that was kind of a, a dark horse. That was something that I kind of went in knowing this is going to be pretty much just my personal experience, so, but I wanted to talk about it. So, yeah, I do think that the the shift away from just the explicit mechanics and systems has let me explore these different games in a way that I guess I'm kind of I've, I've discovered that I'm interested in this kind of stuff. I think games can do a lot of things for people, and I kind of like sharing my experiences about that. Let's go back to those early videos and see how that from behind the screen it evolved. Your first video was The Art of Control on a game I've never heard of but looks like an amazing character beat-em-up game. Yeah, uh, that first video, <laughs> there's a, that was on a, the Dishwasher Vampire Smile, which, yeah, you're right, it's an action beat-em-up from a small indie studio, Ska Studios. That's a game that I really, really love, and I think that the reason that I focused on the art of control was just the way the game controlled so fluidly, so smoothly, so naturally. And I that was the first video where I wanted to focus specifically on design. I mean, I had some other videos before then, but they were clearly just me finding my feet. I would just talk about a game and not necessarily go in-depth with its mechanics, not really going in with a game design critique mentality. And I remember I had published that video, and the developers, James and Michelle Silva of Scott Studios, were impressed with it. They thought that I had sort of explained what makes the game great, and they said I kind of hit the nail on the head with that. And that was a really fun video to make because it was the first time that I said, okay, I want to try looking at game design. I kind of want to stray away from just kind of dryly explaining, you know, like in sort of a review or in something like, I guess more in the product review sort of scope. I wanted to focus on something that was a little more evergreen, that was a little more not sort of locked into a specific format. And I had a lot of fun with that video. And uh, it still is, you know, it's the first video that I made under that umbrella. So I wanted to, it it has a lot of sentimental meaning for me. I, I bring it up in part because it's a marked difference of your later videos, which focus more on the, the single game and what it brings to the player, in that you do try and make connections of the point you're making towards this one game as sort of having universal constants towards all other games and how they function when you start talking about the idea of the controller and how a great game is one that, even for a moment, makes you forget you're holding it. Yeah, I. it sort of was an aha moment for me. I, I was playing the game. I had originally, a long, long time ago, I had done another video sort of in the product review sense on the dishwasher because I think that the dishwasher, like you said, the fact that it was relatively unknown to you, I think it's a game that's relatively unknown to a lot of people. And I go into these videos with the idea that, you know, if no one knows about this game, let me kind of tell them why I feel they should. 
it was just a really interesting method of me to focus on a specific game and say, this is why you should know about this game. I've noticed that I've changed a lot over the course of this whole YouTube scene, and I still kind of like focusing on single games and videos, but there are exceptions. Like, I definitely, uh, for my Evolving Rhythm gameplay video, I kind of looked at a bunch of different rhythm games. And the more I see other uh, YouTubers making videos, I guess, more based on not single games, but I guess ideas that can that are used in multiple different games. I've been interested in that as well, and that's something that I kind of would like to pursue in the future for videos instead of just focusing on a single game. I, I just bring that up because it's a different approach that you started out with the one, and then you sort of, if you're not, like, as well-versed in, like, all the nuances that video game criticism on YouTube can take, like I have become over the past year and a half, is that it, it doesn't look like a big difference, but it, it's a subtle shift that you can know, especially if you watch them all in an afternoon. You, you say, oh, he's doing something quite different now. And I guess I was just I was just wondering over, like, two years if that is, like, settling into what you're good at or what you're comfortable with and what you can bring to the table. Yeah, I think over time there's a lot of risks that I feel that I've taken. I think that the, the shift away from singular mecha mechanics or singular games, I've seen other YouTubers, like one that you've already talked to, in fact, uh, Mitch Kramer, uh, Heavy-Eyed, he's done a lot of videos where he kind of explores ideas across multiple games, multiple genres, and that kind of broadens the scope of the possibilities of video game criticism. I think that similar to, to Mitch, uh, like I said, Mark Brown does this a lot with his videos, but it's something that I feel I'm still trying to find my feet with. I think that the video I did on rhythm gameplay is probably the closest I've come to looking at something with that large of a scope and looking back I do feel that some of my older videos are very limited by that single game, single idea format. And uh, I'm really anxious to try out something with a little bit more scope, I guess a little bit more ambition. Another neat thing that I noticed with that as your person, I, I don't know how to phrase this correctly, but as your like personal style of doing it, of doing criticism, that je ne sais quoi that you can never really nail down, is you delve into a lot of horror games with your, like, specific design perspective, like, more so than you, than you usually see from a YouTube channel. I mean, just, just off the top, you have Fear, Layers of Fear, The Detention, Eternal uh, Darkness, Alan Wake. Do you feel that your particular brand works with horror games, or do horror games lend themselves to easier emotional design analysis than other genres. Yeah, now that you say it, I have done a lot of horror games. I never really <laughs> noticed that until... Uh, I didn't notice that until today. I was just yeah, like, I mean, wow. it's... it's, it's uh, and none well, of them are in October. Well, so, some of them are. I, I, I think for a while I was... Um, I would do one every October, just sort of it's, you know, it's a celebratory tradition. But then I started doing uh, horror games just throughout the year, because I remember that horror gaming and basically the horror genre in, in general, it just sort of fascinates me on a level where 
you can see they're like I said in some of my videos, they're they're really easy to get a reaction out of. You know, uh, fear is just such a visual emotion that people like to express themselves. You know, they scream, they jump. It's it's it really just gets a certain mindset for the player. And the reason I kind of do all those horror games is just because the horror genre in general is is interesting to me. It it triggers some sort of reaction where I want to explore, okay, why do we get scared? What about this game is creates its kind of horror? And I think that I like looking at different kinds of horror. Like there's the, the horror that you see in something like Eternal Darkness is not the same as what you'd see in Fear. And that's just, I didn't really notice this until probably around the time, like I said in my Alan Wake video, I actually did a college paper on Alan Wake, sort of how it uses horror as in the video game medium. And that really is what contributed to my desire to want to do a video on Alan Wake. But in the cases of like Layers of Fear, Until Dawn, Detention, there was so much on display in those games that really showed that horror doesn't have to be in a single way. There's so many different facets, so many different avenues that a developer can go in order to create fear. And I guess that's just something that really just stuck with me over the last few years. I like that you, you point out that you're able to do horror in, or create fear in in so many different ways because when you when you put it right down to it, it seems like one of the few genres that isn't easily like rubber stamp replicatable. You get a military first person shooter, you have you by by the end of next year you'll have four or five also rans. But if you try and copy a horror game in the also ran style, you're going to flop. You're gonna fail. Yeah, there there's something about horror games where it's really easy to see when something is a replicant compared to like like there are so many games that try to rip off you know five nights at freddy's or slender the arrival and uh, even things like pt have been extremely replicated and that's something that i've kind of grown a little bit of a you know i've kind of shown my criticism towards that idea like i'm so much more interested in games that do horror differently that's kind of why i like games like eternal darkness why i like games like until dawn I think that the horror genre is something where it's very easy to sort of ride the coattails of the newest trend. But anytime I see a game that does something incredibly original or something that's done in a setting that I feel no one has really done yet, that's kind of why I wanted to do that video on detention. I just find that really interesting when, when horror is done in a more, I guess, a unique way. Do you think, because at the core of any horror media, it has to express something that's actually feared, something that the creator or the audience could be afraid of, and just taking the surface-level tropes isn't going to instill that? I honestly think that you can make anything scary if you try hard enough. I mean, <laughs> we've we've seen, you know, I, I think that in the case of something like Five Nights at Freddy's, you know, that was something that a lot of people were afraid of as kids or sort of the animatronic thing. But really, I think that just the way that you develop fear, the way that you take advantage of atmosphere, very, very careful scripting of fearful events, um, I think it really comes down to just 
how attentive you are to how fear works instead of necessarily something that makes someone afraid. I think it's more the method, not the subject, I suppose. And if I'm going too much on the horror games thing, it's like I really lucked out being able to talk to you in October. Because so. <laughs> when you think about it, it's like the, I guess the tenets of horror, or at least in gaming, is that when it's when you remove agency or the, remove the ability to act against the things that endanger you. That's the, like, common wisdom of horror games, of how they work and how they achieve fear. What in your work, how do you, or looking back on it, how do you think it actually happens? Or is that common wisdom largely correct? I, I think that the idea that taking away agency is a really good way to create fear, because I've said this in a lot of my videos, that once you don't have the understanding of something that is out to scare you, then you're going to fear it. It's natural I, because, you know, humans are logic based beings. So when we're kind of take when that sense of logic, that sense of understanding is taking away from us, we naturally fear it. And I think that removing agency is a really powerful way that games can create fear. Uh, doing things that are unexpected, doing things that confuse us or just sort of dehumanize us. And I think that games like Until Dawn did a really good job of that, which is why I wanted to make a video on that. So I think that that's absolutely true. Removing agency is a very powerful method to make the subject feel defenseless, I guess. Is there anything else that over the number of titles that you think it's any tidbits that you've uh, well, not uncovered but elucidated? In specifically the horror genre? or Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I keep a close eye on horror games. I know that there are a lot of games that, have, that are coming out very soon that it, I, I think that the horror genre comes in waves. Like you have that one big title and then – you have a lot of other games that try to replicate it. And now I'm starting to see that there are a lot of games that maybe not get a ton of publicity that are taking horror in a different direction. And I think that games like Detention did that. And uh, it really just comes down to, do you understand fear? Do you know how to make people feel defenseless? Do you know how to make them feel like their agency is coveted? And I really have seen some pretty amazing works over the last few years from small indie studios who are able to take what a lot of what, what made a lot of really great horror games great and either contextualize it differently or just try something that's totally out of left field. I think Detention was a really great game that did that, taking the setting of a totally unexplored sort of setting. And that's one reason why I like making videos on horror, especially when it's something that does the setting or the method in such an unexpected way. Do you think that there's, or is there an as much, or is a different type of learning from the failures in the horror? Because not every game you've covered has been a winner. I, I think that examining the failures of the horror uh, genre is is absolutely important because there have been so many games that try to be copycats, that try to 
sort of look at different successes on the very surface level and then just try to replicate it right there. And I think that overlooking the failures is a really risky technique, and I don't think it gets people to dig deep enough. And, like, you see so many Five Nights at Freddy's clones. You see so many Slender clones. You're even seeing things like PP clones. And I think that when when you see a success like PT and you just try to replicate it, I don't think that – I think you're kind of missing the point. I think one – and a lot of people just don't dig deep enough into what makes fear. Why was this scary? I think that if there was one game that – uh, that's on the way that I think is very promising in being PT-like. There's a game called a Visage that's supposedly coming out very soon. I think uh, may, sometime next year. It does things very similar to PT, but then in some of the gameplay that I've seen of it, it does something does some things that are so so innovative, so so cerebral in how to make horror. And I, I want to see more games like that. I want to see more games that dig deep, create set pieces that articulate the sense of fear so much more cohesively. So really, that's the, that's the flaw, I think, with a lot of the ignoring the failures. You don't dig deep enough. You don't understand that fear has a lot of different tenets. So the devil's in the details, as it were. <laughs> Absolutely. But I'm tsh- <laughs> You mentioned that you made you did some creative risks in your YouTube career, and let's talk about one of them at your attempt at a feature-length piece of criticism on Banjo-Kazooie Nuts and Bolts. Oh, yeah. Um, I remember it was around the time that everyone had really started just going after Nuts and Bolts, like and everyone treats it as, you know, this is what killed Rare. You destroyed the Banjo-Kazooie franchise, and... And for a while, I was like, I was just sort of exhausted with that mentality. I'm like, you're, a lot of people would hate it just because that it supposedly killed the Banjo-Kazooie series. And I'm like, did anybody really play it? Because I think that there's a lot of other problems that I think need to be addressed. And that was really me just <laughs> venting for like an hour trying to uncover every single issue that I really had with the game's gameplay beyond just it's not the Banjo 3E game that we wanted. I have tried making other videos that are feature length like that, but it's that takes a lot of energy and a lot of focus, and uh, I'm not entirely sure if I'd ever do something like that again. I have considered it, so... I'm really not sure if I'm going to try that again. It's, it's something that I'm curious to explore, but I kind of dread the creative process because that took a lot of time and effort to make a video of that length. For uh, the listeners who may not be familiar with Alex's YouTube channel, the majority of his videos are around 10 minutes. They're 8 to 12 minutes long, the sort of normal essay length. And Banjo-Kazooie is three minutes shy of a full hour. So it is quite a step up in his normal production. I was, uh, I, I just think that that game is, is extremely misunderstood. You know, I'm not trying to say that it's actually really great. I think it has a lot of flaws. But that was sort of my desire to sort of redirect the conversation into something with 
a little more substance beyond, oh, this is not a platformer, this is not Banjo 3E. And I, I also made that video sort of right before Ukulele was released. So I kind of wanted to talk about not just the game itself, but sort of its place in the realm of this recent resurgence of 3D platformers like Ukulele, like A Hat in Time. And uh, that was I, I still feel like I was kind of venting in that video, just sort of this catharsis of, oh, I'm so tired of people just saying that Banjo-Kazooie Nuts and Bolts is just rare, just totally dropping the ball on this franchise. So it was both catharsis, but it was also a really big opportunity for me to pursue something of greater length, of greater production values. And uh, it's still probably one of the most ambitious things that I've done on the channel. It's interesting you say that this is not games that everyone was expecting. When you did a previous video on the first two Banjo-Kazooie and Banjo-Tooie games, and then showed how very different animals they are to each other, based in a very simple change of design. I've gotten some comments on the Banjo-Kazooie Nuts and Bolts video, sort of referring back to the Banjo-Kazooie, Banjo-Tooie video. That was a... That was just something that I noticed when I was playing through the original Banjo-Kazooie and the uh, Banjo-Tooie on the Xbox Live Arcade. I just sort of noticed that these games that are paired together so much actually are very, very different. And I noticed that a lot of people who had played ukulele, who may have been disappointed in some way, were kind of starting to realize that ukulele was very similar to Banjo-Tooie as it was to Banjo-Kazooie. And I think that that realization of how different ukulele felt from the original Banjo-Kazooie's sort of brought about the conversation that, hey, Banjo-Kazooie and Banjo-Tooie are very different. And uh, I, I kind of rode that wave, I guess. It's also kind of interesting that you went so far outside your wheelhouse when it just comes to sheer length and the amount of work that goes into it, because several other people I've interviewed, the very, very long-form thing is their bread and butter. Um, thinking of Noah Kevill Gervais and Joseph Anderson and specifically, but for most other people, such thing would be an aberration, but because it's it's not what you're like naturally, I guess, predisposed towards in your criticism. Yeah, I have, I have a lot of respect for like people like Joseph Anderson and Matthew Batosis who make such long, in-depth videos, but they're also just so insightful and people are, are they set aside a lot of time to watch the, these extremely long videos. And I guess the reason that I don't really do that same kind of length is it, it can get tiring. I already feel like I ramble a lot in some of my videos. So sort of taking things to that next level, the, the Banjo-Kazooie Nuts and Bolts video was, I, it was something, it was definitely me doing something different. Yeah, I actually prefer making shorter videos because it helps me keep my thoughts a little more concise. That's really just my mindset. I think that editing is something that I've been trying to improve upon in my videos for a long time. So making a video of that length, you know, at the time, it was exciting. At the time, I felt that I was relaying a message that not very many people heard. But you know, I, it was also a very, very long project. Even editing a little bit each day eventually started to stack up. And when I was finally able to release that, I was 
it was just a big, big breath of relief. Like, oh God, I hope people watch the whole thing. It's also worth noting that, as we sort of stated before, that each video seems to be is centered around a single idea, and then how does the game express that idea? And when you're doing something that's an hour long, you have to have you have to talk about the game and all the ideas or all the things it tries to do, rather than just the, the one focused one you seem comfortable with. I definitely felt that going into the nuts and bolts video. I had the idea to, I said, I want to talk about everything in this game and just sort of dig up all of the stuff that people may have overlooked just because it's a Banjo-Kazooie game and it's not the Banjo-Kazooie game that a lot of people wanted. I think that focusing on so much was, like I said, it took a different mindset for me to do that. But at the same time, I think that it allowed me to develop videos in a more organized method. Like at the very end, I wanted to explain each of the problems, but also how to fix them. And that was something that I I kind of relayed in one of my lesser known videos is the Piano 3 video, where I said, I really just wanted to, if this game has problems, what can be done to fix them? That's a mentality that I've done, not just in my videos, but in my life, where if there's a problem, just sort of complaining about the problem isn't necessarily going to fix them. I kind of want to springboard ideas and see what can we do to make this a success. And then, of course, there's your other great experiment, or experiment's probably the wrong word to put it, but you did your video entitled Gaming with Obsessive Compulsive Disorder. This is your most personal video. Yeah, that video was, uh, there's a there's a lot behind that video. As, as, as I said in the video, I was diagnosed with obsessive compulsive disorder in high school, and I kind of wanted to see how that affected me when I'm playing video games. It originally started, as I said in the video, there's a, a charity called TakeThis.org. It's run by, uh, I think, Susan Arendt and uh, Russ Pitts, two sort of veterans of the games press. I think uh, they worked at Polygon, Joystick. Sorry if any of that's wrong. Like, I don't want to be wrong and they hear this. But um, I submitted sort of a story to the website saying, you know, detailing my experience with OCD because I think that there's been a lot of coverage of mental illness in games and how we can take this seriously and see if we can help people who are suffering from mental illness. And I noticed that obsessive compulsive disorder really didn't have a lot of attention. I mean, I'm not saying that it's that either is more important than the other, but I've seen videos done sort of covering depression in video games. I've seen some by like L. Hudson. I know that, like I said, Mitch Kramer did some videos, uh, Hellblade detailing mental illness, but obsessive compulsive disorder always felt like something that was a little underrepresented in the YouTube scene. And I kind of just wanted to share a personal story, seeing like how OCD has affected me when I'm playing video games, what sort of symptoms appear from certain games. And uh, in retrospect, I really hammered down well. And that game gave me a lot of trouble overall. And I, in, in retrospect, I kind of feel like I I really threw that game under the bus. Well, that just kind of speaks to you personally. It is a terrible game because it affected you terribly. And would you say that's that would be fair, given that criticism to a certain degree is subjective? Yeah, I 
it's weird because the game's mechanics were pretty sound overall. I mean, at first I was having fun. I mean, at first when I was playing that game, I'm like, I'm going to do a review on this. And then I started getting having to start all over from the beginning after getting so far. And then after a while, you start getting fatigued. So you start losing on the first few levels instead of the really long ones. And eventually I just I just said, I, I can't do this. I, I can't play this anymore. And the fact that it kind of hovered around in my Steam library, anytime I would see a video about it, I would just feel really bad about myself. And I think that it is subjective. And I think that I'm criticizing it in a rather unorthodox way in the OCD video because I'm citing these mechanics that affected me on a very personal level instead of sort of this is why it's good or bad design. I'm pretty much just saying this game's design overall really took a physical, mental toll on me. And speaking of like how we do that to elucidate stuff, instead of elucidating things about the game wouldn't you say that kind of thing sort of elucidates how the condition works by what can exploit it? Absolutely. Uh, obsessive compulsive disorder manifests in so many different ways. And I think that the variety of ways that it affects different cases is something that I really hope more people explore. I've only seen a, a handful of other videos sort of detailing how OCD affects someone on YouTube. I know that there are a few... One I remember is that I saw a video by uh, the YouTuber Critical where he sort of just explained his what OCD did to him, what kind of rituals he would have to do just to sort of settle his mind. But really, that's it. And my whole goal with that video was to explain the condition and specifically how it manifests. And I, I'm really, really happy with that video because... I feel it got a lot of attention. I feel a lot of people, I, I still see comments that say, wow, this explains a lot about my own OCD. And I just was really, really pleased with the reception I got from that video because it felt like my personal story was being explored and shared with a lot of other people who wanted to hear something like that. I'm glad to hear that you are you are getting like a reception to your work because I can only see from what the numbers that YouTube displays, but it seems like you're like really on like the outside of like this whole sphere. Like you, like if I were just to glance at your channel, I would think that you aren't getting that the attention that your work does deserve. Well, it's, I'm still small. I mean, it's connecting with, with other YouTubers is pretty hard. I still kind of feel very anxious even approaching them. But um, I just have the, of the mindset that, you know, I, I pin this tweet on my Twitter all the time. You can't get better if you quit. Yeah, it, it, but the thing is, it's like, unless you do, like, make those external connections, it is hard to find. Like, I only found you, like, two or three months ago. It's It was just during one of those times when YouTube says, let's show him videos that he hasn't watched ten times before <laughs> in his recommended pile. And it got me, like, four or five new channels, and yours was one of them. And then when I looked, oh, is he new? And no, he's been doing this for two years. Yeah. It, Sorry, go ahead. And, and I was just saying, in the same amount of time, like some, like other YouTubers that you've mentioned, they've started maybe like a month or two months or even the same month as you that I've interviewed in the past few ep episodes. 
And they have a much grander following. They have an explosive following. YouTube is so random. It's kind of, it's not a very insightful thing to say, but when it's that stark, it it does, does kind of bear mentioning. I think that I totally agree. YouTube is very unaccommodating to smaller channels. I don't think that there's too much we can do on on YouTube's end, aside from changing the algorithm entirely, and they're not going to do that. But I've, in my experience, I have found myself gravitating towards a lot of smaller channels. There are some that I found on the r slash video game analysis subreddit, and there are people who have just a few hundred subscribers, but they produce some very impressive work, whether it's well-produced as far as visuals and just the quality of their effects or just an argument that I haven't heard before. And that's seeing a channel that is so small and but still producing these incredible, incredible, insightful, cerebral videos. It's exciting. You feel like there's this entire sphere that just hasn't been tapped yet. And that's why I'm so enthusiastic about sharing these people's videos. I love seeing someone who may only have, I don't know, maybe even 200 subscribers produce videos that are so well-designed and so well-argumented that I just kind of want to get out and share them on Twitter or share them on another subreddit. There's a lot there, and I think that it's something that really makes me feel good when I'm showing other people like, hey, this this guy doesn't have very many subscribers. Check it out. It's exciting. I, I really like finding small channels that are producing content that are extremely high caliber. That's actually very heartening to hear as someone who has like 50 subscriptions of not, not all video games, but 50 channels in their subscription things. Uh, YouTube tends to get very conservative in what it will tell me exists. So it's very heartening to hear that the Wild West of criticism hasn't completely died down. I think that the video game criticism field specifically is probably one of the most untapped wells of content on YouTube. And I mean, I like watching a Let's Play every now and then, but I find so much more value in finding someone who maybe is, if they, maybe they're looking at a game like, I don't know, Legend of Zelda Majora's Mask, and they talk about something that I've never heard a critic say before. And just, I'm really interested in, I guess, the video essay crowd, not just in games, but I know that there are some, like like another YouTuber I follow, Core Ideas, he does videos on games, uh, TV shows. And I think that the video essay community is definitely going to benefit by having more voices, more men and women who are able to look at games or media in general differently it's it's exciting. This is a kind of field that I want to see grow, and I really like participating in. Now, I've asked this question of every person who's come on, and it's becoming it's become less relevant over time. Like in the early days, they had wildly different answers, but they but sometimes I'm still surprised. What do you feel video adds to the criticism? There's definitely a sense of liveliness to it. I think that, you know, I've written written papers, I've written articles, and it can be kind of admittedly pretty dry reading. No, no disrespect to anybody who focuses on written content, but uh, there's something about videos that has this attentiveness, and it makes you kind of want to see 
what exactly they're talking about. It's it's hard to explain, but video is a field that I really wish YouTube could see the potential of. And the video essay community is so ignored by YouTube, and it bums me out. You'd think that a website that focuses on video content would be able to see the academic and the intellectual potential of the video medium, but I guess that's asking too much. No, it just sees the dollar signs. Yeah, sadly. I guess just to like wrap up various sort of contents you have in your channel, of your end-of-year videos, the WTF moments, the top ten list, and the top ten albums, well, you've only done them twice, but... Yeah, those videos, uh, uh, the interesting thing about the, the WTF videos is that... that or, Which is the what I was really wanted to hear about. Uh, well, I mean, those were, those originally stemmed from something I did when I worked at Hardcore Gamer. Just these weird things that have happened throughout the year that may just make people like, what, what was, what's up with that? And for a while, I kind of made that a tradition. But something I noticed last year when I was doing that that video, the WTF video, I felt like I was forcing myself to make a video that I wasn't entirely invested in. So I I don't, I don't know if this is going to bum anybody out, but I'm probably not going to be doing one of those this year. I kind of wanted to retire that idea because as fun as it is to kind of just poke fun at the industry or poke fun at different events that happened, that I, I kind of feel like the whole time I'm working on a video like that, I'm doing it to serve a quota, to sort of complete a tradition. And the whole time I remember when I was doing the WTF for 2016, all I could think about was the the, the next analysis video. I, I had that on my mind the whole time. And that kind of goes with any sort of video that I was going to, that I feel I need to make a tradition like I make a horror game video every year for October, but this year I said I don't really see myself doing this video because I want to. It was more to serve a tradition, and that's something that I've kind of gotten away from. I know a lot of other video content creators say, make what you want. Uh, you shouldn't have to force yourself to make a video to fit some sort of tradition or algorithm. And... This year, I really started to see what they meant. So I think that that's kind of what I did with the WTF video. I said, this was fun. It's interesting to do this. But I kind of want to make videos that continue the analysis, the insightfulness. And, you know, I might come back to the WTF thing down the line. But right now, I really felt that that was – I was forcing myself to make that video. And – uh I wasn't really having much fun with it this last year, so sorry to say I might retire that this year. I just wanted because it was just something so different. Because like, yes, top ten games of the year, okay, that's standard. Top ten albums, okay, he's branching out, showing his tastes in other mediums. Top five WTF moments in games. Well, I just kind of have to watch this <laughs> one because that's something you don't see every day, right? Another thing you cut out of your videos was showing up in them personally. Yeah, um, the interesting thing, the thing with that is that live action, for, first of all, it takes a lot of time and accommodation. I need to make sure that the lighting is correct. I need to make, I need to memorize lines to make it look natural. And, but then I kind of came to the realization that people really aren't coming to my content for me 
so to speak. They're coming to see what I had to say. And while I know that, you know, there, there are, I know that there are YouTubers who like being in front of a green screen or on camera. I just kind of came to the realization that, I don't know, are, are people really coming to see my face? I have no idea. <laughs> Although major props on getting the audio consistency between voiceover and live action. <laughs> As someone who knows who have, or who's been forced to learn about audio acoustics and just by witnessing how a change in camera angle can starkly change the audio, major problem. Well, thank you. Um, that's that's something I guess I uh, I kind of learned that on my own because I'm a really I'm a real stickler for audio leveling. I mean, I, I pay super hard attention to that. I've seen cases where there's barely any audio leveling, and it it's something that irks me. So I didn't want to be part of the problem, I guess. Yeah, I I'm I work on basically a shoestring budget, and it bothers me when it doesn't work out. And unfortunately, I don't have a lot of uh, feedback on when I, when I was getting it right or not. So when someone finally told me, "Oh my God, this is terrible," it's just like you couldn't have told me this months ago. It's only when you have to look at the waveform. Oh yeah, that bother you <laughs> that you you learn. Oh. Everything I thought I knew was wrong and horrible. <laughs> that's that's kind of how it works for me, too. Well, that's my full quota of questions, so I guess that just leaves the fluff one. What is your favorite video game of all time? Oh, yeah. Oh, the fluff question. It's kind of become a little bit uncool to say that your favorite game is one in the Sonic the Hedgehog series, but um, Sonic 3 and Knuckles is still my favorite game, uh, Genesis. Ah, you're squeezing two titles in there. Well, yeah, that's kind of cheating, but, and you know, all the videos say this is what Sonic 3 was originally going to be. And they couldn't fit it on one card. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, I think that there is nostalgia toward that. I originally got into games, video games in general, because I, ha I got a hand-me-down Sega Genesis from my older cousin. And I, I just was, anytime I would go over to their house, I would just immediately want to play Sonic the Hedgehog or Sonic the Hedgehog 2 or Sonic the Hedgehog 3 and Knuckles on the Genesis. And it wasn't until I got my own hand-me-down Genesis that I thought, this is the game that I want to play more games like this. And even in adulthood, I can still go back to Sonic 3 and Knuckles and have a ton of fun with it. I don't think that it's become worse. I, don't, I think it's aged very well. I think it's still a ton of fun to play. And I, I think that that's really, for me, what makes my favorite game. It's just a game that I can go back and play and just become completely engrossed in, just as much as I was when I was a kid. Well, Alex, tell the people where they can find your work. Uh, yes, if you go to youtube.com slash Um Let me spell that because some, sometimes people don't know. <laughs> they get confused with the spelling. P-O-S-T-M-E-S-M-E-R-I-C. I have all my videos there on the YouTube channel, or you can follow me on Twitter, twitter.com slash postmasmeric, and uh, that's pretty much it. And you're the first person I've interviewed who does not have a Patreon. <laughs> yeah, I, <laughs> I, I've, I've been thinking, like, I, I'm just not there yet. I need to grow as a channel before I start asking for money. <laughs> but I, whatever, I, whatever you're comfortable with. Yeah, I would be comfortable with. I mean, I... I really feel for a lot of the people who YouTube has disadvantaged. And uh, there are Patreons I support, and I do 
believe that YouTubers deserve to have a to not be treated so neglectfully. And to everyone out there who has a Patreon, I, I wish you the best of luck. I'm hoping to join you someday, but right now it's I'm just going to focus on making the content worth watching. And we at Critical Distance, thank you for that vocal support because. We do have a Patreon, and that's what keeps the lights on. You can find it at patreon.com slash critdistance. And if another way you can support this podcast is by rating us on iTunes. A rate and review, every little bit helps. I always love to see a new one when it does show up. And for the Patreon, it not only funds this podcast, it funds everything, all the projects we do at Critical Distance. And we'd like to give a special thanks out to Akshan D, Asmund A, Brendan V, David K, Joe O, Nathan G, Ted D, and Thien A. Thank you for your support, and thank you, Alex, for coming on the podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Yep, it's been a blast. Bye.